Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <laughs> I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining me today for a really funny um, and really fun book to read. So I just finished talking with Xu Bijing about her new translation of Feng Longlong's Treasury of Laughs. It's called Feng Longlong's Treasury of Laughs, a 17th century anthology of traditional Chinese humor. This came out with Brill in 2015. Now, what uh, you'll find in the interview to come is a conversation not only about this really fascinating book, um, but also about the place of this book, this particular treasury of laughs within a history and larger context of China, of Chinese studies, of humor, both within China and beyond, and also uh, some reflections on how this particular kind of work, a joke book, basically, right, a book of humor from the 17th century poses opportunities and challenges for a translator. Now, not only are you going to hear Beijing talk about all this, but stay tuned because by the middle to the end of the interview, you'll also hear her very generously sharing some of the jokes with us. I think she reads about seven jokes from the book, and toward the end, they become sex jokes. So stay for the translation, stay for the theoretization of humor um, and Ming China, um, but also stay for the sex jokes at the end. Um, trust me, they're worth it. And with that, I will leave you to it. Thanks as ever for your support of the channel, for listening, and I hope you enjoy, and I hope you enjoy um, the joke book in particular as much as I did. I'm here today with Xu Beijing to talk about her new book, Feng Meng Long's Treasury of Laughs, a 17th century anthology of traditional Chinese humor. Beijing, thank you so much for being with me today. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. And thanks for both making the time and also giving us such a fascinating and really, really fun uh, translated book to talk about. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Of course. So let's talk about um, what we tend to talk about uh, as the first thing in the channel traditionally. So let's start big. Can you talk a little bit for us about how you came to work on China and the academic study of China specifically? What brought you to the field? Okay. When I was in Taiwan, my undergraduate degree is foreign languages and literature. So I really never thought that I would make the, the study of Chinese history my career. Um, and when I came to the United States for um, graduate study, my first major was comparative literature. I thought that since I have been pretty familiar with the Chinese literary tradition, um, and also my degree was in foreign languages and literature, I could do a comparison. But when I came to um, this country, I, I realized that my department defined comparative literature as um, a comparison of two different European mm-hmm. traditions, and, and that was not what I was interested in doing. 
So I transferred to East Asian Studies, and then gradually um, my interest turned to history. And I thought that China would be a very good field for me to study. Because when I was growing up in a Chinese society, I felt that I knew everything about China. So China did not particularly interest me. But after I left a Chinese society and and came to an American environment, I found that um, when I studied history and, and when when scholars mentioned China, they seemed to inspire me to look at China differently, and that got me really interested in in the study of China because I felt that when you step away from China, you probably can can see China more clearly than when you are inside of a Chinese uh, environment. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. So the book that we're talking about today is a translation of um, this Feng Long Long work, The Treasury of Laughs. So can you talk for us a little bit about how you came to be interested in this particular work? Maybe why Feng Long Long and why this particular um, Treasury of Laughs um, as the focus of your work here? Yes, I first encountered Feng Long Long's Treasury of Laughs when I was counting in my dissertation library. Uh, My dissertation title is Celebrating the Emotional Self, uh, Formal Long and Late Meaning Ethics and Aesthetics. And because the University of Minnesota doesn't have a very good East Asian library. I mean, the, the collection is, is good, but not very substantial. So I decided to go to Harvard Engine Library <laughs> to do my research. Um, Feng Mong interests me because he is somebody who talks about Qing Jiao, uh, emotion-driven romanticism or heroism or, you know, act. So, so Feng Mong says that he defines human life by emotion. Mm-hmm. He said people who, who don't have emotions, he doesn't think of them as, as real human beings. And that really touches me because I am a pretty emotional person and I always feel like uh, if somebody is always very um, serious or in, indifferent and, and doesn't have a lot of compassion or love or, or strong feelings, mm-hmm. then it's difficult for me to associate with that person. So I think his Qingjiao emotion-driven um, teaching touches me. And, and I wanted to read everything from Meng Long wrote, uh, but particularly the part of his writings that, that touches on uh, selfhood and, and emotions. Mm-hmm. So when I decided to go to Harvard Engine Library, I uh, contacted a, a friend there uh, whose name is Peter. Peter and I went to the University of Minnesota to do our um, master's together. And he and I also both work for Professor Ann Wartner. We are, we are her research assistants. Uh, but when I, sta- I stayed in the University of Minnesota to do my PhD, and, and Peter went to Harvard <laughs> to do his PhD. And, and when he learned that I, I wasn't I was going to to his school to do my dissertation research. He said that he would be there to give me moral support. So the first book that I picked up at Harvard Yenjin Library was Fomon's Treasury of Laughs. Mm-hmm. And Peter said across 
the table uh, with me. And, and when he noticed that I was making great efforts to suppress my giggles, he became <laughs> very curious. And he asked, uh, what is it that, that you are reading? And I said, I'm reading a jest book. And he said, I thought you came here to do your dissertation research. He was very angry that I, I was reading something fun. And then I said, search. And then he said, are you serious? How did you get in to approve of such a project? And you even got a dissertation a dissertation fellowship to do it. And he became very envious and said, oh, yes, people, aren't you... Don't you regret that you leave Minnesota? <laughs> um, but I felt that I was sort of taking some sort of risk when I when I choose sort of a soft topic for my dissertation because as a historian, people usually anticipate you to do research on an important person or important um, historical event, important institutions, etc. And so when I chose love songs, short stories and and jokes as the the primary sources for my research, I I knew that some people might thought that that those were not very serious uh, source materials. And and indeed, when I went on a, a job search, sometimes people ask me, you are a historian. How can you justify yourself? <laughs> don't you love those kinds of questions? If, if anyone's listening, please don't ever ask people those <laughs> kinds of questions in job searches because they're really not very useful questions. Right. But anyway, go on. Yeah. And, but, you know, then, then, um, then when I was uh, doing my first book, um, my other PhD advisor, um, Professor Ted Farmer, suggested me that that my dissertation is about humor, and uh, not just humor. My dissertation is about emotions and, and and personhood, and then the dichotomy between didacticism and and romanticism. But he says that a lot of the materials in my dissertation, he said, he has to admit, is dry. And so he said, when you are turning your dissertation into a big book, please uh, get rid of the dry stuff and just focus on the fun stuff. And so he actually suggested that that I I, I wrote a book about humor. And so my first book uh, was entitled Beyond Eroticism, A Historian's Reading of Humor. Nice. In Fong Molong's Child's Folly. Because a lot of people who know Fong Molong thought that, oh, Fong Molong is, is the person who wrote love stories and, and, and love songs. And so, so people associated Fong Molong with eroticism, you know, something off color. But I feel that it's sort of doing him a lot of injustice because he is also a serious person. But he, but he's a serious person who wants to express his serious ideas in a humorous way. And so I feel that when you look at him simply as somebody who, who wrote pornographic stories or, or who, who have, you know, jokes about, about sex, that's really just a, a part of him, but another part of him is he, he loves to talk about social satire and, and political political criticisms, 
And even when he uh, wrote love stories, he actually has a lot of moral lessons. For example, he wants lovers to be responsible for their action. He doesn't want people to be uh, lacking in faith. He wanted people to, you know, love somebody and truly that love that person with the full heart. And so I, I think even when we are looking at his his uh, love songs and, and jokes about sex, etc., it's not purely for eroticism. There is a kind of serious undertone, uh, but expressed in a very humorous, you know, lighthearted way. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I think that's great. But also, you know, we're not knocking eroticism and pornography and love songs because those are good too. Right. So it sounds like Feng Meng Long yeah. has just got it all. And you've sort of, um, you've hit on a really fascinating set of issues here. Okay. Uh-huh. So we're talking about the jokes, right? We're talking about the joke book and this translation that uh-huh. you um, are taught that we're talking about today and that you've done here for Brill is part of Brill's um, series on emotions and states of mind in mm-hmm. East Asia. Now, mm-hmm. early in the book, you talk about um, being asked to do this translation for mm-hmm. the series. So can you talk a little bit for us about how that happened? How did you come to do this particular translation for this particular series? Okay. Okay. Um, it, it still all goes back to my dissertation. Uh, a little more than 10 years ago, once I received an email from Professor um, uh, Paolo Santangelo, uh, and, and Paolo Santangelo sent me an email saying that uh, he had read my dissertation and was impressed by it. And he said that he has been doing a lot of research on emotions and state of mind. And he wondered if I could contribute to, to the field that, that he has been interested in. And I think at that moment, I just published my Beyond Eroticism, a historian's reading of humor in Fomon's Child's Folly. So I told him about that book, and he immediately said, oh, send me a, a copy, and I'm, I'm going to write a book review for you. Oh, wow. And it, it was wonderful because that was actually the only book review that anybody has read <laughs> of this book. Um, and, and, and he he sort of wrote a, a very long and, and quite positive review of that book. And then he also asked me if I had other uh, articles that I would like to to contribute to his um, journal that he has been editing, which is called Ming Qing Yan Jiu, The Research of Ming and Qing Dynasties. And I said, um, I have been interested in dreams and, and so I had actually did Done. I had actually done a, um, a seminar paper on the, the universe of dreams in Vermont's Sanyin. Um, but that was sort of an, an immature essay, and I would like to revise it. And so he said, fine. So I revised it, and I sent it to Ming-Chin Yan-Jiu, and it's about dreams in Vermont's Sanyin and how dreams are not just illusions and, and, and not just something that is separate from reality, but sometimes the dreams reflect some sort of reality and dreams can even alter reality. Um, and, and, and then later he asked me if I could contribute a chapter to a book that he has been editing. Let me 
hear the title of that book, uh, Laughing in Chinese. Mm-hmm. And so I said that I, I could, I could um, assemble a few jokes and, and also do an analysis of how the jokes reflected self and society. Um, and so I, I contributed a, an essay to that uh, volume, but, but that volume Unfortunately, uh, it took a very long time to come out. He had difficulty finding a publisher interesting in it, but finally it, it came out. And then he asked me, now this time he says, I have been editing this Emotions and State of Mind in East Asia series for Bria. Would you be interested in doing a complete translation of Fomalong's Treasury of Laughs? And I said, I think it would be difficult because when I do a complete translation, I cannot pick things that I mm-hmm. find interesting and I cannot pick things that I understand. Because even if a joke is difficult to understand or not funny, I still have to translate it. And so I thought it would be difficult. But he says, you know, um, it will be a, a great contribution to, to this series. And I, I read to you what he put in the preface about sort of the, the reason why he edited this series. Um, he says the emotions and state of mind in East Asia series concerns the research and analysis of the representation of emotions and sto- states of mind and their collective Im- imagery in East Asia. In this perspective, this new series has opened the way to international publications concerning the topic of the research project that I, meaning Sant'Angelo, started at the end of the 80s. Uh, The aim of the series is to gradually build a picture of the mental structures in Chinese history. All the volumes analyze instances of affective experiences over a wide variety of Chinese texts, either presenting the translation of significant sources and or glossaries from the underlying new and to um, the representation of the mental structure in Chinese and other East Asian societies from the angles of cultural anthropology, linguistics, psycholinguistics, literary criticism, history, and sociology. And I know that usually when he published a volume in the Emotions and State of Mind in East Asia series, he would do a glossary of the vocabularies uh, that uh, express certain human emotions. Uh, But we agree that we are not going to do a glossary of that kind because the because the treasury of laughs really doesn't have vocabularies that that expresses human emotions. Because every time when somebody says something, Fomalong simply says somebody which means sex, and 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 there are very few words that really talk about emotions. Sort of the the the, the emotions of the buffoons can be sensed by the reader, but but it. It's not expressed in words. And so there really isn't a very rich vocabulary that expresses human emotions. It's just that, that you can sense that, that this person goes through a lot of different emotions and, and then we find his emotional responses 
quite funny. But the, the, the language itself doesn't seem to be funny that way. And so there isn't a glossary. And so he says, because we are not going to be able to, to create a glossary of the vocabularies of emotions and state of mind, then you would have to, to write an introduction sort of linking the treasury of laughs to emotions and states of mind. Uh, so you have to explain why humor is an emotion or is not an emotion um, and how, how humor uh, carries something important that, that uh, makes make us understand the Chinese mental structure better. And so I, I did um, an introduction. And this introduction was, was done in Taiwan when I uh, was on my sabbatical leave. That's the, the tail end of my research. I have finished the draft of the entire translation, um, but because because my university is sort of teaching-oriented university, we have very heavy teaching load and, and we don't really have a lot of time to do research. And um, because I was already a full professor, they felt that... that Teaching relief. If they have money for teaching relief, they would give it to junior mm-hmm. uh, faculties. And, and so, so when I was doing this this translation, I had to do it totally out of my own mm-hmm. free time. Uh, but finally, I weathered through the seven years of waiting, and I, I was up for a, a, a sabbatical. Mm-hmm. And and then uh, I also applied for a, a Taiwan fellowship to do research in, in Taiwan because I felt that, that, that I should go to Taiwan um, to to sort of get access to the literature in, in Chinese so that I can complement my uh, English literature, I mean, English language seconds secondary sources with Chinese language secondary sources. So I was fortunate to be able to get both the sabbatical and, and the Taiwan fellowship to, to do the, the research. And so um, when I went to the you know, central library to double check my translation, because there are a lot of places where I feel a little bit uncomfortable or, or uncertain, and I have to, to check a lot of the dictionaries and, 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 and literary allusions, you know, I have to double check a lot of things. And I realized that I made tons of mistakes and that, that was just shocking. I thought that I was pretty good with classical Chinese. Uh, but when I, when I checked the dictionaries and then when I checked the, you know, encyclopedias, I, I found that there were a lot of things that I misunderstood. And so I was, I felt very lucky that I was able to go to Taiwan to, to sort of correct a, a lot of the mistakes. Great. So let's get right into the book itself to give okay. listeners a sense of um, some of the richness of the text. So the okay. Treasury of Laughs was compiled by Feng Menglong in the 1610s. It mm-hmm. includes more than 700 humorous skits and jokes from right. both elite sources and from popular sources. Right. And Feng Menglong actually rewrote um, some of them to give the volume a kind of aesthetic and stylistic mm-hmm. coherence. Right. So let's talk about this work um, in terms of its significance for a couple of fields. So mm-hmm. Can you talk for us a little bit about what you take to be the significance of this text for the study of China? How does this te- how is this text important for how we understand China and for Chinese studies? Okay, Feng um, Long's treasury.
menagerie of jokes include more than 700 jokes, and the source materials really ranged over several centuries. So, in a way, we can say that、uh, the treasury of not joke book it is a synthesis. Of traditional Chinese humor up to the time of Feng Monglong, and after Feng Monglong published the Treasury of Laughs, this book also becomes sort of a foundation for later、uh, joke book、uh, authors to to use. And so it, it's a synthesis of so almost like the entirety of Chinese humor in in various categories, and his materials. Are very inclusive. For example, he has jokes about old people, and he also have jokes about young people. He have jokes about parents, but he also have jokes about children. He has jokes about the lower class. He have jokes about the upper class. It seems that he is trying to just knock all knock it all out. He doesn't leave any materials out of the collection. He wanted to collect. And any kind of joke materials that that China ever produced. So I think, in a, a way, it helps us understand sort of the Chinese mentality and the Chinese humorous tradition very well. And also, he is a pretty good editor, editor because、uh, he would. I mean, he apparently consulted a lot of joke books, but he would leave out jokes that seems to be highly, highly elitist that very few people can understand, and he also left out jokes that are so profane that it really. Was offensive to to the majority of people's、um, sensibilities, and so he already did some sort of、uh, gleaning through the materials and and chose the materials that are quote unquote appropriate.、Uh, but it's appropriate probably for the main audience more than for a twenty first century American audience because there are still jokes that seems to be a bit too much,、um, <laughs> especially the jokes about.、Uh, Homosexuals who、uh, have anal sex, and and there's a lot of, you know, fetus, fetus, and 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 those kind of things. It's very filthy. But but、uh, even though some of the jokes seems to be a bit hard to to accept from a modern point of view, I think they are still important because they help us understand that. Political correctness seems to be defined differently in different culture and in different time, and so things that we find very politically incorrect might be co- politically correct to the main audience. That's why it, those jokes were included in the treasury of laughs. So it, it, I think it helps us understand the degree of tolerance of the sort of Chinese sensitivities to understand Chinese culture. Great, thank you.、Um, so you, you've also talked a little bit about the significance of the text for the study, not just of China, but also、mm-hmm. of、uh, for the study of humor specifically.、Mm-hmm. Um, so you've already talked a little bit about that, right? Is there anything、um, kind of in general that you'd want to mention in terms of what you take to be, in addition to what you've already mentioned, the significance of this text for the way we understand the study of humor?、Mm-hmm. Yes,、um, I think that the joke book includes jokes that are, you know, more 
specifically interesting to the Chinese audience, but it also includes a lot of more universal jokes. For example, anti-establishment jokes and, and sex jokes and jokes about uh, the relations between the teacher and the students, the relations between, uh, say, the, the boss and, and the workers. Uh, even though the specific circumstances differ, still you can make associations and, and, and feel that, oh, I can relate to that. And so, for example, a lot of jokes about uh, education, I, I think it is pretty universal and, and it can really bring a, a laugh to, to pretty much everybody who has been in uh, an educational institution. For example, there is a joke about the exam. It's um, in chapter one, for B of Gregory um, of Labs. Did you want to just um, kind of look at that now? Read well, that for us now? Um, page 44 of... Okay. Uh, page 44, um, exam, 1.4B. Um, a student of the Directorate of Education, sometimes translated as the Imperial University. Uh, so a student of the Directorate of Education passes by the door of the academy and hears that the professor is punishing two students who have enraged him with a serious offense. Curious, he asks the doorman if the punishment is a fine, a beating, or a confinement and learns that the professor is giving the student an essay exam. The student says indignantly, Whatever they've done, they don't deserve such an excessive punishment. <laughs> and I'm sure some of my students would, would say the same thing because my, my essay exams are difficult and they would say, oh, this is a punishment. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I'm going to use that, but I'm going to, I'm probably actually not going to show my students. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but I think sort of. A, it probably is a joke that would entertain the professors more than the the student. But there is yet another. If you can indulge me, yes. there is yet another uh, story uh, story about teacher and and student um, relations. That's on page seventy one, mm-hmm. um, two point eleven a, and the title is "Sleeping During the Daytime." <laughs> a teacher dozes off during class hours in broad daylight. When he wakes up, he makes up a story. I was dreaming of the Duke of Joe, like Confucius. The next day, the student also dozes off during class. The chief with a refuge, a furrower, and scolds him. How could you fall asleep? The student says, I too was dreaming of the Duke of Joe. The teacher challenges him. Oh, really? What did the Duke of Joe say? Well, he said he did not see you yesterday, answers the student. <laughs> uh, so the joke is both about the student and uh, about the teacher who, you know, those off during different times uh, in, in the class. And I think this, <laughs> this joke is important because sometimes my students do those off during my lecture and I always got very angry. And I thought, oh, maybe I should remind myself of this joke and then I would not be so angry. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's great. Thank you so much. And that's great because also I think it gives listeners a sense of two of the many, 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 many really great jokes. You know, this is a really fun and funny book to read. So 
in the introduction, you actually talk a little bit more um, in some detail about mm-hmm. Feng Menglong's notion of humor, like the way he treats humor, the way he thinks about humor, and its connection to morality in various ways. Right. So in the intro, you suggest that Feng has a particular way of connecting jokes, humor, and morality um, in which he advocates. And you've already talked a little bit about this um, in your uh, in your introduction, actually, uh, uh, to this interview. He advocates that people, in the words of the book, be true to their genuine feelings and moral conscience in both their mindset and their action. And you talk in particular um, in the intro about the value of something that we might translate as youthful fancy mm-hmm. right? and its connection to humor here. So can you talk a little bit about that for us, for you? Um, what's interesting for us to understand about this idea of youthful fancy and humor and uh, the kind of morality that Feng Meng Long is thinking about and promoting here? Okay, yes. Um the Treasury of Laughs is actually the third of a series of three volumes that Thomalong edited. Mm-hmm. Um, collectively, they are called Tong Chi. And in my first book, I translated Tong Chi as Child's Folly. And that is a pretty conventional translation. I think I borrowed the term from, from some of my predecessors who had done research on Thomalong. Uh, but, but then I, I became a bit unhappy about this translation. Yes, Tong is, but uh, Tong Chi, if I translate Tong Chi as child's folly, then people will say, oh, this is children's literature, but apparently these are not children's literature. It's <laughs> yeah, so appropriate for children to, to read. And folly also has negative um, connotations, sort of, oh, these are human follies, and, and, and we should try to get rid of any emotions that is expressed in, in this uh, in, in this trio. Now, Tong Chi has three um, volumes. The first one is Gua Hanging Twigs. And so it's um, popular songs, usually love songs in the cities. So that's Gua Hanging Twigs. And the second volume is Shanghe, Hill Songs or Mountain Songs. And so these are folk songs sung by uh, workers in the mountains and, and on the hills. And the third one is Xiaofu, uh, Treasury of Laughs. And so I noticed that in Hanging Twigs and um, Hill Songs, Feng Menglong is praising those singers express their emotions in a very spontaneous way. And so men and women sing about their love, and sometimes the love is sort of forbidden love, the love that is not uh, approved by the society, the love that is not approved by the parents. So young men and young women fell in love, and they, they talk about how they are affected to, to, to each other in, in their songs. So these seems to be more positive examples of how people bravely sing about their passions and, and they show disregard for social expectations or for social norms. Uh, but in the treasury of laughs, it's the opposite. It's sort of people are, are doing foolish things or say foolish things, not because they 
have passion, but because they suppress their passions or suppress their emotions, and they suppress their spontaneity, and so they would they would do things that are very hypocritical or do things that are very calculating, and so there's a lot of jokes about people who are stingy, people who are chauvinistic,、uh, people who are overbearing, and and people who. You know, show a lot of false pride,、mm-hmm. and so these are sort of negative examples of how human emotions are suppressed and then maybe twisted. And so, Feng Long, I think Feng Long, in his preface to to Xiaofu or, or Treasury of Love, say that that he wants to use the jokes to sort of、uh, stimulate people to think about their own way of. Suppressing their emotions just to to appear to be think twice about their behavior, and maybe they can then realize that they that they don't they don't always have to suppress their feelings that that they can actually be more spontaneous and more truthful to their feelings. And Feng Mulong says that the society is. Sick, because people always suppress their own feelings, and so it's almost like a collective mental illness.、Uh, everybody is trying to be, and so this seems to be the underlying moral lessons that Fomolong tried to to teach by telling jokes. Now, in his preface, he also invokes. Um, a figure of a medieval trickster priest, right? This is the cloth、right. sack monk. He says,、right. "Cloth sack monk, you're my master. You're my master." Now you talk about this figure of the cloth sack monk in the introduction、mm-hmm. as well, and it seems like that might be a good place to go to now,、um, since you just talked about、um, these virtues and the values he's placing on these sorts of things in the preface. And he also invokes the cloth sack monk as his master in the preface. So, can you talk about this cloth sack monk? What is he doing here? And what's his importance? Okay,、um, the clock sack monk claimed that he was a reincarnation of the Buddha Maitreya,、uh, Milafor, and and you know, usually when we think about Milafor or Buddha Maitreya, we think about the Laughing Buddha. And when I did research on the cloth sack monk, I realized that before this person was born in China,、uh, when the Chinese painters painted the portrait of Buddha Maitreya or Milafor,、uh, the picture of this Buddha is just very similar to other Buddhas. You know, compassionate.、Uh, Mildly smiling, but but in general pretty serious and、uh, in good shape. But after the classic monk、uh, claimed that he was the reincarnation of Buddha Maitreya, the Chinese Buddhist painters started to alter the image of Milafor or Buddha Maitreya, and it, and, and Milafor becomes a laughing Buddha with very round belly, you know, fat, and 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 had a. a Claw sack、uh, on his shoulders, and, and so I I started to do a, a little bit of research on classic monk, and I found that when we when we think about the laughing Buddha, at least the laughing Buddha seems to be pretty good looking, but the the 
the historical closet monk is portrayed to be somebody who is ugly, uh, who looks like a, a bad guy. So people were sort of put off by him, and and he was also filthy. He he did not take a bath. He he was smelly, and he was you know talking nonsense. He seems to be a crazy guy. And in his uh, cloth sack, he store a lot of food refuse, um, garbage. Sometimes he would distribute the the food refuse or the garbage to the kids uh, who seem to be attracted to him. And so the adults thought of him as somebody who was crazy and, and filthy, uh, but young children seems to be attracted to him. But but this guy was always talking nonsense that, that nobody seems to take him seriously. Uh, but then before he was dying, he revealed himself to be, you know, the reincarnation of Buddha Maitreya. Mm-hmm. And then, and, and then after his passing, there was a lot of miracles uh, uh, around the place where he was buried. And then he, sometimes there would be sighting of him, uh, with his cloth sack. Uh, and then people started to think back on all the nonsense that he talked during his lifetime and realized that, that even though they sounded crazy, it, they all came true later. And so this is somebody who is always joking and who looks very unserious, who is even filthy, who is sort of disgusting. But but the, the nonsense that he talked turned out not to be nonsense. And so I think when Feng Melong evoked the, the, the image of classic monk, he was asking his audience not to take the jokes as simply jokes and, 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 and that they should take the jokes seriously. And even though he sometimes uh, has jokes that seems to be filthy and dirty, they are not so filthy and dirty. When you think about it, they actually... T- are clean, but <laughs> I think it's a very interesting claim that 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 there should be non-duality between what looks filthy and, and what inside is actually quite sacred. So I think that the you know the, the treasury of laughs not only is entertaining, it also has some sort of philosophical undertone to it, and and that is you shouldn't take things at face value. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah. So after the preface, um, the book is actually divided into 13 sections. Right. Um, these are sections that cohere around particular themes, and they range from age-old envy, rotten scholars, the untouchables, occultism and medicine, various vocations, extraordinary faculties, petty sport. <laughs> Mocking vulgarity is the eighth section, and then we move in the ninth section to air of sexually sophisticated women, body parts, funny mistakes, daily necessities, and finally intercalary words. So let's maybe, um, you've already generously read to us a couple of jokes. Now that listeners have a sense of, okay, there's this preface, um, the kind of virtues celebrated in the work, the, the sections into which the jokes are divided, would you mind reading a couple more for us of uh, jokes that you find particularly interesting or particularly, um, uh, and jokes that you just like to read for us that come from any of those sections? Okay, sure. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Let me see. Okay, there is a joke. Um, King Yama searching for an eminent doctor. King Yama, of course, is king in hell. Um, so Yama, the king of hell, dispatches his runners to search for an eminent doctor in the world of the living with the instruction. If you find a physician 
whose clinic is not haunted by unrequited ghosts. He is the one I'm looking for. Now, every clinic the runners visit is crowded with unrequited ghosts of patients who died. But finally, they come to a clinic with only one single ghost lingering about. They decide that this physician must be an eminent one until, that is, they learned that the doctor just hung out his shingle yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this is a joke about physicians who kill Patients, and we know that medicine was not a field that a lot of people seem to have a face in, because people think that uh, a, a doctor would probably not want to cure you once and for all, because then he he would not have further business to do with you, and so probably he would try to give you a, a, a slow solution, a slow solution, so that then you will have to come back to him time again so that he can earn more money from you. And, and sometimes physicians are believed to be people who don't really have the skill but, but pretend that they have the skill. And so there's a lot of um, wrong, wrongful diagnosis and things like that. And I think even in the modern days, from time to time, we see this kind of tragedies. And so I think the joke about a, a bad doctor maybe <laughs> universal okay. and for listeners who are looking for this particular joke who get their hands on a copy of the book um, this is in the fourth chapter occultism and medicine and it's on page 116 okay. great do we have time for uh, another? yes please it would be great give us another one if you would be so generous <laughs> uh, okay page 149 mm-hmm. uh, the joke is uh, shoe repairman mm-hmm. A shoe repairman has used only one pair of leather bottoms throughout his career. He always glues the leather bottoms to the shoe so superficially that after the customer leaves his shop, the bottoms will drop for sure. Trailing the customer, he would retrieve his leather as his principal. One day after following a customer for a distance, he fails to find his leather. Lamenting and crying over his permanent loss, he returns to the shop and is delighted to see that the letter had already been dropped even before the customer stepped outside. <laughs> and I, when I first read the joke, I, I couldn't help but actually be sympathetic with this shoes, shoe repairman because he loves his letter bottom so much. <laughs> it's not fair to, to sort of hard with it. <laughs> <laughs> So, Beijing, like these are, even now, these are, I I think, um, they translate really well. They're really funny jokes. And I think um, sitting down to translate this particular kind of work poses different kinds of challenges, right? And different kinds of Mm -hmm. difficulties than perhaps translating another kind of work. Um, Can you talk a little bit for us about um, what for you were some of the challenges of translating this particular work? What was particularly challenging? What was particularly difficult? And can you take us into your process a little bit? Okay, yes. Feng Long was a, a, a man from Suzhou. And so sometimes he would include Suzhou dialect and Suzhou slangs in his jokes. And because because I am from Taiwan, I cannot speak the, the Suzhou dialect, and, and I, I don't really have the vocabulary in, in my 
in my quote-unquote encyclopedia mm -hmm. about the, those lands. Sometimes it's difficult for me to understand uh, the pseudos lands and, and, and the pseudo ponds, etc. But for Molong somehow anticipated that. So sometimes he would have... Um, um, a trend, uh, sort of an editor's note saying that, that this word in, in the pseudo uh, dialect is pronounced like that in Mandarin Chinese. And so if, if you speak Mandarin Chinese, you may not get it, but, but you know, and so he, he would give us the, the note to help us understand the pseudo puns a little better. Uh, but he doesn't always do that. And so sometimes when I encounter something that is a pseudo dialect or a pseudo slang, I feel that, that maybe I won't be able to really get it and I have to guess it a lot. And also there's a lot of puns in the jokes. Um, and so sometimes two Chinese words have very similar or the same pronunciations, uh, but they mean totally different things. And other times, it's two Chinese characters that look very similar to each other, but they mean totally different things. And so when you read the jokes, you can appreciate it if you know the Chinese language. But for people who are not a, a native speaker of Chinese, those puns could be difficult to understand and a lot of explanations in my footnotes. And when the footnotes are long, the jokes become not so funny. And so my difficulty is, how can I translate something that is difficult for non-native speakers, but still convey some sort of um, humor in it? And oftentimes I have to say, I give up. I'll just say, read my notes and you would understand why it is funny for the Chinese, but maybe not for you, but you know, I'm sorry. Uh, and other times, um, he would use some literary allusions that are not very popular. And so I have to admit that there are some phrases that I just couldn't find in any dictionary. And, and so, again, I have to do a lot of guesswork. Um, and, and sometimes he would mention a certain toy or a certain musical instrument that, I, that I'm not familiar with. But... but under those circumstances, I actually find Google pretty useful. I would type in the Chinese characters for that particular toy or particular musical instrument, and, and Google actually shows me how it looks like. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, so, not, yeah I told, I'm a total believer in Google as a research tool. I'm right, completely right. with you there. Yes, yes. Uh, but, but sometimes there are things that even Google cannot understand, and so I, I would really have to resort to just guessing games. And other times it's not that the phrases or the the um the material things that, that puzzle me. It's sort of you, you understand every single word but you still cannot understand the joke. Um Probably because the the comedian's brain works differently from my brain, and so I I just cannot understand it. And I will read it and read it and read it, and still I have to say, oh, I give up, skip, uh, and then I go to the next one. <laughs> but I keep that joke in my mind. Um, and sometimes when I was watching a PBS murder mystery or or reading a, a Chinese or Japanese murder mystery, it hits me and I said, oh, I got it, I got it. 
It's not that the the Joe book has a lot of murders and, and, and mysteries. It's just that I think you know murder mysteries and, and solving the puzzles and, and understanding the jokes sometimes work in very similar ways. So how when when sort of a a, a mystery is solved on TV or or in a detective book. It inspires me to think, oh, maybe I should alter my logical thinking, and then I can understand the joke better. Because the joke, I think that the comedians is always teasing us, and he says, okay, when you are hearing the joke, your mind works this way, and you make your own logical associations. But the punchline tells you that your logic is way off. <laughs> um, and so you feel cheated, but then you have to smile and say, okay, I, I. I have to admit that the the comedian is smarter than I am, <laughs> because he, he he thinks this way and it seems to be illogical. But after all, he simply follows a different logic. So so the joke is logical. It's not just it's just that it's not the common sense kind of logic. Mm-hmm. I love that, and I love how you're kind of inviting us to think about murder mysteries and sort of solving. Right. Uh, problems and coming up with solutions in a way that puts it into conversation with jokes. I think that's really fabulous. So, Beijing, is it too much for me to ask you to share another couple of jokes with us? Uh, before oh. we wrap up, because we're moving toward, um, if you can believe it, we're already moving toward the time where we'll have to wrap up, but there's so many wonderful, delicious jokes in this book, and it would be such a shame if we didn't um, at least share with listeners maybe just a couple more of the ones that you think. Oh, thank you for read. giving me, thank you for giving me that, that yeah. uh, on page 162. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a joke about forgetfulness. And, and I think any joke about forgetfulness is, is, is funny because sometimes we forget things and we have to laugh at ourselves. Uh, so uh, a man brings a hatchet to the bamboo grove to cut bamboo. Having a sudden urge, he puts the hatchet underground and enters the bamboo grove to go. While he is relieving himself, he incidentally looks up and says, oh, we can use some bamboo at home. There is some nice bamboo here. Unfortunately, I didn't bring a hatchet. After he's done, he sees the hatchet and is overjoyed, saying, Heaven has answered my request. There happens to be a hatchet here. As he is searching for the right bamboo to apply the hatchet, he spots the shit, gets vexed and complains, Who emptied his bowers all over the place? It almost hurted my feet. (laughs) So this is... Somebody who just cannot remember anything that happened to him or that, that came across his mind just one second before. Um, and of course, this is hilarious because it, it exaggerates things. However, I think everybody has some forgetful. Absolutely. <laughs> and can probably appreciate this kind of joke. Definitely. Okay, there is another joke, a, a little um, off color. That's okay, let's go okay. there. That's page 248, Mm -hmm. Upset by Children. Okay, let's do it. Husband and wife are doing the bedroom thing. 
At the peak of her pleasure, the wife keeps crying out, "I'm dying!" The two sons are both in bed with them. Hearing the mother's remark, the elder son cannot help but burst out laughing. The mother is embarrassed and angrily hits the boy on his head. The younger son voices his support of the mother, saying, "Mommy is right to strike big brother." Hearing that you are dying instead of crying, he laughs. <laughs> So this tells you that you should not put your children on the bed. On your bed. <laughs> Lessons from Hong Wang Mom. Right. <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much, um, Beijing. Is there? So we're now at the point where um, it's time for us to wrap up. But if are there any other jokes that you are burning to share with us? We maybe have time at most for one more. But if there's one more that you're like burning to get on the air, we can definitely make time for that. Okay,、uh, one more sex joke. One more. Let's do one more sex joke for、okay. the for the listeners for the people. <laughs>、um, page two fifty two. Okay, it's called aching belly.、Mm-hmm. The wife about to give birth suffers a severe pain in her belly and keeps snapping at her husband, saying, "It's all your fault that I'm in such distress." The husband coaxes, "My dear, to save you from further complaints, after the baby is born, I'll castrate myself." The wife renews her scolding. "You stinky turtle!" Just when I'm feeling a bit better, here you go again, getting me mad. <laughs> And the Joker's note: her scolding words should be spoken in a sick-like voice for it to be truly funny. <laughs> And of course, this means the wife doesn't want to have the pain of delivering the baby, but she still wants sex. Well, Yijing, I wish we could talk. Honestly, for another hour with you just reading、um, jokes, <laughs> but we're at the time to wrap up. Now,、okay. there's、um, there's a ton of material in the book that we didn't have time to talk about. There's all kinds of great stuff that listeners will find、um, when they read the introduction to situate themselves within the world of the book and、um, the world that emerges from the book. And there's also some just pages and pages and pages of. Fabulous jokes、um, that that you've very generously shared moments from, but that、um, listeners will find an ample quantity when they find the book for themselves. Given that, though, is there anything else that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners before we wrap up?、Uh, I think we've actually covered the ground pretty well. Thank you very much for. Asking me those very interesting questions that allow me to talk about my book, and I hope that the, the interview would inspire our listeners to actually go out and buy a copy of my book. Yeah, <laughs> thank you very much. And now that the book is out,、uh, what's next for you? What are you currently thinking about and working on? Okay, because I have been writing a lot of essays, and then you know. I have a couple of books about for more long. I felt that even though I really love this guy, I have to、uh, say goodbye to him at least for a, a moment. And so, my next research project may be about Kokshinga,、um, uh, Zhen Chenggong, and the the history of Taiwan because I am from Taiwan and I feel that I have been doing research on, on Chinese culture and society. And perhaps it is time for me to think about where I am from and and.、Uh, I, I 
I choose Kokshinga to be sort of my first project in, in the history of Taiwan because Kokshinga is both uh, somebody who is interesting, I mean, who is important for the history of Taiwan, and also he was an important person in, in Ming history. And so I feel that I don't need to, to depart from Ming history and, and still I can, I can do something that is very different from what I have been doing so far. Great. Well, best of luck with that work. And thanks for taking time away from that. Thank you very much. And share some jokes with us today. It's been a pleasure. And thank you so much. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us today. And we'll catch you next time.